Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. We are offering three separate conversations for Wednesday night's episode previewing the Fourth Global Nash Congress. Each conversation collects snippets from throughout the episode with a common theme. The theme of this conversation is taking a holistic view, which is admittedly a bit grab bag for a theme. But the topics include the increasing importance of phenotyping and understanding how individual patients' diseases and ideal therapies differ. Louise Campbell's memories of last year's third Global Nash Congress, which she attended, and considered unique in one very important way. And it winds up discussing promising studies on diet, exercise, and even bariatric surgery that will be presented at the Congress. I describe this as a holistic view because the importance of understanding the entire patient and the differences between them seeps through repeatedly. The conversation switches topics, but inspires thought and challenges throughout. You'll want to hear it. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn. And when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. On April 28th and 29th, stakeholders from across the global fatty liver community will come together to hear 43 speakers address a range of NASH and NAFLD issues at the 4th Global NASH Conference. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Dr. Jarn Schottenberg, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, and GenFit Global Diagnostics leader Sunil Hosmain as they preview some of the most exciting and forward-looking concepts from the NASH Congress this week on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. Louise Campbell discusses the increasing importance of phenotyping and something unique about the third Global Nash Congress. Some stuff on day two that was looking at genetics and the predisposition, genomic transcription analysis of um, NAFLD by Anne Daly, who's professor of pharmacogenetics in Newcastle University, UK. So I suspect linked to Quinton's team. So they're looking at that quite closely. So I'd highlighted that for one of my day two listens. We've mentioned it before that we're becoming more and more genetically looking now. And I think each one of these takes us a little bit further, but I think it's exciting, the work that's going on in that. And this this sort of conference does it. This was the last in-person meeting that I attended last year. And it was, as we discussed probably earlier, it was the one conference that I'd been to where NAFLD was driven by endocrinology and cardiology rather than hepatology and early science. It was exciting last year. It's changed slightly this year being hybrid. It was not even hybrid being online, but it's a, it taking it in a different direction for me. How did it change the dialogue to have it driven by endos and cards? I don't know. I was surprised to see Lauren Castera was there and there were a couple of people, Alex Miras, who does um, bariatric surgery at Imperial, but there weren't too many other hepatologists that I was aware of in the room. But they did three parallel sessions and one was particularly endocrinology focused, one was cardiology. And in fact, some of the lectures, certainly one of them was a cardiologist and it was naffled is a cardiac disease. So it was absolutely exciting to hear how passionate other specialities were about fatty liver disease that we certainly in the UK consider as a liver condition primarily. And where toys like Fibroscan, MRA, MRI, PDFF become liver toys for liver people and for only 
patients who are diagnosed with liver disease, where you know my passion is lots of people have liver disease, we diagnose very few and we have to do better. So it was very exciting to hear that. But I still don't see the move to add a lot of non-invasive diagnostics into cardiology and endocrinology. And I know no cardiologist currently in the UK personally who does Fibroscan at their clinics to check in their hypertensive clinics, their high cholesterols. So I just don't think it's done. And there are very few endocrinologists and it's primarily liver centers with comorbid fatty liver clinics that they run with their endocrinologists that use Fibroscan or non-invasive tests. So it was interesting to see that move in dynamic. And then you go to Easel and Arzold and Nashtag, which is again, liver physicians talking about it with very few of the other specialities there. So I'd certainly like to see a more collegiate approach and maybe a joint European Association of Obesity, Liver and Diabetes who link together for some of the pathways, the same with Arzold and the American Association Diabetes Joint Conferences, where we target this now together. You know, Louise mentions a very important point. I think the guidance of the international association is always very important for these uh, meetings. And I think that's, that's a great step forward here. And, and to join forces, that, that's something that really is going to then bring up great science and, uh, and industry involvement. So I think that's important. I think that's exactly right. Work we're doing for private clients tells us that different specialties, even at the non-academic level, are starting to take interest in this entire area and figuring out how they can touch it. it. It feels a little bit like a Rashomon to watch gastroenterologists, hepatologists, endocrinologists, primary care and cardiologists all ask themselves, what diagnostics should we be doing in our office and how, and what tests should we be learning? Where will we invest in equipment? And what's our real play in here? What's our role in, in the disease? But it's a question everybody is starting to ask. And what we've learned is that there's more interest in some certain kinds of tests and certain kinds of um, modalities than you would have thought from the specialties that are expressing it. So I, I believe that this may wind up being a bottom-up kind of push, which is if the Nash stakeholder community pushes up and primary physicians start to believe this is something they've got to get more engaged in, that the associations are going to have to follow in order to lead. Presentations and panelist thoughts about lifestyle interventions. Day two really excited me for the fact that there is a lot of talk on, on lifestyle, which I think is still, you know, we're talking about this as the cornerstone of, of therapy and, and all trials include this. So I think this is very important. And we have three top speakers here uh, addressing nutrition, uh, physical activity, and, and even bariatric surgery. And Nash, Anya Gertz from Ghent. And, uh, you know, I, I know Shiraz Elbasaji, a respected friend and expert in that field, is going to do a great job summarizing nutritional epidemiology. She's done great studies on on the association of the red meat and, and NAFLD and um, dietary components. I'm very excited to see what she's going to talk about. The second study that will be presented by Susan Norris, I was uh, thrilled to find out that they actually did something very similar to what we've been studying in Mainz, where they did short lifestyle interventions, 12 weeks of training to show that patients with defined disease improve on non-invasive markers. And in their study, they did even include a control group, which I think is always particularly difficult in lifestyle 
lifestyle treatments, but they succeeded and showed that within 12 weeks, you can succeed in improving biomarkers. But then in the long term, patients do lose that benefit again. And, and that, of course, highlights that for, let's say, at least a good subset of patients, we do need additional pharmacological interventions and, and treatments. But I'll be thrilled to hear what she thinks about how to go about physical activity in NASH and, and how that can be turned into the benefit of patients. You're on one question and then everybody else jump in. Do they not maintain the benefit because they can't maintain the change in regimen? Or is it that they maintain the chain in, change in regimen but somehow the benefit goes away? In that paper I was referring to it and it's published in APT, they did a 12-week intervention. They were able to show that they increased their VO2 max. So you can train those patients and they have a sports physiological benefit increasing oxygen consumption. And they went back after 52 weeks and my perception is that they just stopped the training. So the regular physical activity when the lifestyle is lost again, then the training benefit is lost and, and you lose your benefit on non-invasive markers. And I guess that's the whole story and, and, and the difficult part on how do you maintain an active, balanced lifestyle as you get older and stay healthy? Yeah, when you do it for 12 weeks, we see the benefit. And, and I think if you're doing lifestyle intervention, whilst I appreciate having a control arm, actually, if you show that considerable amount of your lifestyle intervention patients improve on it, that to me is your outcome. Where we've often commented, and Stephen comments a lot, it's about how you maintain that. How often do you then see the person? If you only do that 12 weeks and go back in a year, statistically, most of us do fall off that wagon, which is why we like yo-yo diets, which is like we only do an intervention when we think it's important to us. When the doctor tells us we do it for a while, then we lose that motivation in most cases. And I think we every study we do and quote shows that. It is about how do you intervene in people's life that show them that constant monitoring is beneficial? Where does it become cost effective? But also the acceptance that we will change our diet. I think VO2 max is an interesting measure because it's so exercise oriented. People kind of have to buy the whole lifestyle package in order for that to hold up if the lifestyle package includes exercise training. I know that personally because I just got a Garmin watch and what the Garmin watch algorithm has me focusing on is improving my VO2 max. And Stephen does talk about that. We all do. I think you know, it gets to a point where after 12 weeks, the important component comes, can you drive change of habit and change of behavior? Fully agree, Roger. And, and the study we did in Minds, again, no control arm, but we trained 40 patients and we did see the the increase in VO2 max and, and in parallel, some direct fibrosis markers went down delayed. So that was very exciting for us to see. You know, I remember dropping ALT was very fast, but then the fibrosis markers took a little longer. And in pathophysiological, that made sense. And I, I would say about half of my patients maintained activity until week 24 is where we followed them. That paper that was published there did 52 weeks and, and then activity is, is lost if you're not following up. So I fully agree with, you know, what Louis said and, and, and uh, you have highlighted that you have to maintain it. And a, and a simple watch, buying a watch might be the answer to be reminded that you got to uh, get moving. But then you have to be motivated to follow your watch, right? I mean, um, denial is powerful. Ultimately, if you can't change your habits and your focus, it's, it's really hard to maintain that stuff. Um, we've talked about that in a whole bunch of ways in this podcast. It'll be interesting to see your paper. Um, I'll be interested to see on Q&A if anybody has comments about what they believe is a realistic way to maintain that change over time. Assuming that you can, I'm, I'm assuming you're, that you can't maintain those patients in the level of program that you put them in for the 24 weeks in mind. I'm not equipped to that level, but there are a lot of programs that could. And, uh, and I think that's an important 
important aspect. Also, when you're considering starting your trial, you have leave to define the activity levels to some degree. And I, and I like to think that you can decrease placebo response rates if, if, you, uh, if you look at those aspects. So question all three of you. Let's assume that all I think about is pharmacology and pathways and numbers. And I wound up encountering these three presentations. What should I take away from them? How should I think about what I do differently as a result? Or should I just simply say there's more to this than I can possibly manage? I think the three presentations will teach us a lot about the disease. Will teach us that it's susceptible to certain interventions that are uh, maxed out bariatric surgery. Uh, for sure, not all patients qualify for that. And I don't think that bariatric surgery is the answer for everybody, but that you can modify the disease and, and halt fibrosis and, and reverse the phenotype, the histological phenotype. So I think this is one thing you can take away from that. The physical activity is, is feasible, it's particular for younger patients because their comorbidities are not as limiting with regards to the physical activity levels, uh, and they might have a bigger ability to increase their VO2 max. So I think that's an important aspect. And then it comes back to lifestyle, and we've discussed this a lot of times here. You can address a lot of things with lifestyle, but I don't think you can cure this disease solely based on uh, on lifestyle for many reasons. And one is just life isn't always looking at nutrition all the time. And so I think that at the end reminds you that this disease is complex, but it can be reversed. It can be uh, supported by lifestyle changes, but you still need pharmacological therapy in, in, in a considerable amount of patients. Okay, good. Louise, uh, I know this is a favorite topic of yours. Any other thoughts on it or have we hit the landscape pretty well? I think we've hit the landscape fairly well. I think what we also have to take into mind that a lot of people who have any problems with weight or inappropriate diets actually can be psychologically more negative. When we look into trials, when we look into placebo groups, they tend to be patients who are more positive. They tend to be patients who engage in that program, which is probably why we see a significant effect in some studies for placebo because engagement is great. But we need to be careful on the other side is that when we talk about weight and lifestyle being the cornerstones, they are for certain individuals, but they're also really negatively impacting some people who don't achieve the target. That's not necessarily a failure. Any positive movement to achieving that target should be a positive. It just takes some people longer. And internal health can be altered with minimal weight loss. We are now looking at that. And I think we have to be very careful about the language we use. I think we have to be inclusive, but we have to be able to identify the different people and the different types and be more supportive of those people because I think we will get more out at the end and they get more out. And that changes behavior more than anything that you can ever say. And they change it positively and they move on positively in different aspects of their life. So if you can change change one aspect, you can really be more holistic. And it's all about the opportunities with these people to engage, because otherwise we lose them too quickly. Okay. Sunil, anything to add or next topic? I think I think the, the areas are more or less that to take this on an individual by individual basis, there's different strategies for each person. And you kind of see multiple topics highlighting that in, in different ways. So you kind of see what the constellation of, of options. But I hope the other thing that they talk about in, in some of these things are how you may layer it on practically. Right, I think it's very difficult to have three or four or five major changes in one's life if you can stagger them slowly and methodically. So they're not so much a nutritional or dietary change, but they're, you're changing the way that you're viewing your life and how you're living your life. 
so that they're long-term changes. That's another key thing, hard to keep a, a diet going. One thing I'm taking out of this discussion from the three of you that I've never thought about it this way before, but maybe shame on me, is that one of the ways to think about pharmacotherapy actually becomes an early stage for some patients, part of the process by which they make lifestyle changes. Normally, we say make the lifestyle change, and then if you can't go to pharmacotherapy, but maybe pharmacotherapy becomes part of how you create the positive feedback loop that makes the lifestyle changes stick. I can't imagine that we're going to see a paper say that in this meeting, but that's what I'm taking from the comment the three of you are making it makes sense you know like it's it's uh, having an early victory however you want to call a victory is a positive feedback loop that will help spur all kinds of other changes also enable all kinds of other lifestyle changes modifications so if you if you think of it as a continuum then it, it would make sense that for some that's the right option or strategy or whatever we hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the contents of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing two other conversations from this episode. Please join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups to share your opinion and, and hear more from us. We'll release our next episode on Wednesday, April 21st, when Jorn Schottenberg returns, along with Stephen this time, to discuss his work on machine learning. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.